Welcome to Father Samuel's Pod. This is a recording of a teaching mass I gave on the liturgy of the Eucharist. The microphone was in my pocket, so it was a little bit scratchy. I hope that you can uh, see past that and learn something new about the mass and hope to allow you to engage the mass in a greater way. God bless. Good afternoon and welcome to St. Joseph's. Today we celebrate the feast day of St. Agatha. St. Agatha died in Sicily in around 250 A.D. Hallelujah, The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed close to the sea. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came forward. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. He went off with him, and a large crowd followed him. There was a woman afflicted with hemorrhages for 12 years. She had suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet she was not helped, but only grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She said, If I but touch his clothes, I shall be cured. Immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Jesus, aware at once that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, Who has touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see how the crowd is pressing about you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. The woman, realizing what had happened to her, approached in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. While she was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid. Just have faith. He did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except... Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they arrived at the house of the synagogue officials, he caught sight of a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So he went in and said to them, Why this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they ridiculed him. Then he put them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. The girl, a child of twelve, arose immediately and walked around. At that they were utterly astounded. He gave strict orders that no one should know this and said that she should be given something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. First of all, I'm wearing red today, and this is, um, I think red is one of the least used liturgical colors because it's only used for uh, Pentecost, Good Friday, and Martyrs' Feast Days, and so it's normally in the best shape of the, of the vestments, but it's also, I find, one of the most striking, right? Red kind of has this, this bold color to it, and I was very grateful to be actually ordained on Pentecost, um, which meant that this was the first vestment first priestly vestment that I wore. Um, and so on the front is a pelican, which you've seen at different times, maybe sometimes at windows. I think in Our Lady of Lourdes, there's a window with a pelican, uh, as well as you often see it on altars. If you see really old altars and everything, there's a pelican with other pelicans around. And, and, and you see the pelican kind of going down into its breast. Well, The idea, the thought, 
was that the pelican, they, you know, in the Middle Ages, this, it, this image kind of arose because they thought that the pelican, in order to feed its young, would actually pierce its breast and make itself bleed so that its, its babies could consume the mother's blood in order to survive. Now, we know today that the mother isn't doing that. In fact, the mother is, is, is uh, eating and kind of consuming some fish or something else and kind of making it into a pulp-like existence, you know, kind of like that, down below. But the idea of the pelican is kind of is a similar idea in the image of the Eucharist. God himself, who lays down his life, who freely allows his, himself to be pierced for our iniquities so that we might be fed with his body and blood. And so whenever you see the image of the pelican, you should think of the image of the self-sacrifice of the mother, but also the self-sacrifice of God, the Father, of Jesus Christ, and most especially of the Eucharist, which we have at every mass. Now, we have other sacrifices that we ourselves have as well, right? We have St. Agatha today, who gave up her life in order to resist sin. She's a virgin and mother. One of many in the early church that are remembered, especially with St. Lucy and St. Agnes, and are mentioned in the Roman canon. So they're kind of like the, the most important um, saints that are kind of compiled into this Roman cana, canon from Rome that we'll actually be using today. And so that's the, that's the Eucharistic prayer that's like two or three minutes longer, but it feels like a half an hour longer. Um, it's only a little bit longer, but it has these sections where there's a whole bunch of saints listed. And one of those is Agatha. Lucy, Agnes. They themselves, like Hebrews today, said that they struggled against... Uh, uh, Hebrews is, is speaking and said, consider how he endured sub such opposition from sinners, right? Jesus. And in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. That we ourselves are also called to see the... Uh, example of Jesus in his resistance against sin, right? Not my will be done, but your will be, your Father, your will be done. His resistance against temptation and sin, but also to see the example of other saints who resisted to the point of shedding blood, to the point of giving their very life for us, or for, as an example, to Jesus Christ. And so, when we come here, we remember especially the martyrs because they're that image of that self-sacrifice like the pelican. They offer up their blood just as Jesus Christ did, offering up to something greater. And that should strike us just as much as this color red strikes us. Now in the Gospel today, we learn something else about Jesus and I think is especially important for us as we approach the Eucharist. The power of just touching Jesus. And it's absolutely fascinating, right? The woman, it, you know, is suffering. And we're all suffering in different degrees from different things, right? Some of it is physical ailments, but we realize that physical ailments are a certain amount of suffering, but, but so are emotional, so are psychological suffering, so are relationships that suffer, right? We're all experiencing different amounts of suffering in different ways. And we kind of should say, like this woman who's afflicted from hemorrhages for 12 years, she says, if I can but touch just the edge of his cloak, right? Just, the, just his tassel, just something that's coming off of him, and I can just barely touch that, I'll be healed. And she does, and the power goes out from her, right? His amazing faith to touch Jesus Christ. Now, we in the Eucharist have an even greater gift than that, that we can receive Jesus Christ, certainly touch him and allow him to heal us. But, of course, it doesn't happen just magically, right? 
There's an aspect of faith. There's an aspect of providence, right? That God orders all things and at certain times allows us to endure in suffering so that we might, a greater good might come about. But that we realize that we're not lacking in the presence of God. We're not lacking in kind of the power of God. But instead, in the Eucharist is the fullness of that, is more than just touching a castle that could heal so much, but that we have a gift to receive and to be healed completely. Now, the other thing within this story that is very important for us to remember is that Jesus is not just a prophet, that when he says things, he's prophesying about something in the future, or, you know, maybe it'll be true, or maybe not. You know, his words are kind of like, well, you know, are they trustworthy? But in the Gospel story, and in other places as well, we realize that Jesus, as the beginning of the Gospel of John talks about, that the Word was God, the Word was with God, and that Jesus is the Word of God, Come flesh, and that we know that the Word of God creates in Genesis, but it also creates here. It makes reality present. When Jesus says something, he doesn't just say something like, as if I say, well, you know, this building is really blue. Well, that doesn't, this isn't doing anything. But when Jesus says, things happen. And we see that in the story today, that he took the child by the hand and said to her, and I think I'm totally butchering this, um, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, rise. And the words that Jesus used are so important that they're actually maintained in the original Aramaic. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And what happens? The little girl arises. He says to Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for four days, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. He says to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. And the sins are forgiven. He tells him, pick up your mat and walk. And he picks up his mat and walks. Jesus' words are not like other people's words. There's something more. And then, as we approach Mass, we should think about the Last Supper. And what does Jesus do at the Last Supper? Well, he celebrates the Passover, but he makes the fulfillment, he brings about the fulfillment of Passover, that sacrifice of the Lamb. And I always find this, uh, you know, sometimes the Last Supper can kind of seem separate from the crucifixion, from the passion of Jesus Christ. But one kind of epiphany that I had in, in seminary was that, was that um, kind of explained to me about how they're actually one event. The Last Supper isn't just the night before the passion, but is actually what sets into motion and actually begins the passion of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus starts the Passover meal, the Last Supper, it is the start of the sacrifice of the cross because it's the start of him freely laying down his life. And so when we celebrate the Last Supper, we're celebrating the crucifixion, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, at the Last Supper, when he takes bread, this is recorded in three of the four Gospels, as well in St. Paul's words, where he takes bread, says, this is my body. Now, strange thing to say. There's no other kind of precedent for this. But he says, this is my bread. This is my body. And again, his words are creative. His words define reality. And so when he says, this is my body, it's not just in a symbolic way, but in a real way. 
even though that the accidents, the accidental quality of bread endures, that it still has a gluten quality, it still smells like bread, it still tastes like bread, well, sort of bread, right? It's not really, you know, unleavened bread or the hosts that we use aren't exactly, you know, what we think of as bread, but it's wheat and water. It still maintains all those qualities, but it is really and truly transformed, even though that we can't see that, just as when he says to the man, your sins are forgiven, and no one can tell, but they are. Even though that no one can tell by outward appearance that this is his body, it is his body. And again, he takes the chalice. This is my blood given up for you. Now, one important note of that is that it's his body and blood separated. When your body and blood are separated, what is the body like? Well, the body is dead, right? The body doesn't have blood. It's, it's dead. It's, it's without life. And so kind of, again, prefiguring, starting that passion and death that he would undergo. Now, for the teaching mass, I'm going to be uh, stopping at different points, but I really... Um, I'm kind of a little bit, what do I say, uh, uncertain. I was just talking with a priest friend today, and he's like, I'm doing a teaching mass, and he's like, oh. There's kind of a, there, when you do a teaching mass, when you kind of interrupt the flow of the liturgy, it's kind of awkward, because it's not meant to be interrupted. It's meant to, to flow, to be able to go from place to place. And so it's certainly not something that I want to do very often. But it's something that I think is, is helpful, right, in those different things. Um, but I'd like to maintain the integrity of the Eucharistic prayer. And so I'm not going to stop at all during the Eucharistic prayer after the Holy Holy until the doxology. And so because of that, I'm going to have to kind of prepare you a little bit for that. So, so my homily just ended. Now it's the teaching math even, even more. Um, and, sorry, just one other thing about the gospel, as long as we're, before I forget, as well. Right now you're sitting and receiving, right? You're kind of in, in that posture. We talked about those different positions. You know, sitting is a, is a posture of reception. Standing is a posture of attention, right? Somebody important comes into the room. And kneeling is that place of supplication, which we see in the gospel today. The synagogue official came forward, fell at his feet, and pleaded earnestly. And we do the same thing on our knees as well during the Eucharist, right? And so just to realize that we were earnestly praying, but we're also in a helpless state. So just remember that, you know, the kind of close link of, of you know, when somebody is begging, they're on their knees, right? Little children, right, when they throw a tantrum, temper tantrum or something else, they'll be on their knees or flying around, right? They're not, they're not standing up, you know, ready to go or whatever. So now into the Eucharistic prayer. So Eucharistic prayer has a few, three really major parts that I'd like to, you know, kind of mention. One is the epiclesis. The epiclesis is what is basically a theological term talking about the descent that the Holy Spirit comes down. And of course, the Holy Spirit descended at, at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descended, descended upon Jesus. There's an epiclesis or a coming of the Holy Spirit in every sacrament. And in the Eucharist, the epiclesis, this coming forth of the Holy Spirit in three of the four major Eucharistic prayers, says actually to invites the Holy Spirit down. The only one that doesn't, by explicit words of the Holy Spirit, is the first Eucharistic prayer that we'll be using. But it still does invoke the Holy Spirit. And the Roman canon, or and the, the Missal, you'll, you'll specifically know when the Epiclesis is when the Holy Spirit is descending upon the gifts because the priest will have his hands out in the Oran's position, the open, uh, open-handed uh, prayer to the Father. And when the Epiclesis hand comes, he'll put his hands down. That's to invoke the Holy Spirit. You'll notice a little bit of a change. Sometimes the hands are apart, sometimes the hands are together. And that's invoking and calling down the Holy Spirit. It's only two lines long, invoking the Holy Spirit. In the Orthodox Church, 
that is seen as when the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In the Western tradition, the Latin church, the Roman church that we're a part of, we kind of describe it a little bit differently. That's an important part, the epiclesis calling down of the Holy Spirit. But the other kind of, I don't know if it's more important part, but the part where we kind of are for sure called forth and that the Eucharist becomes the Eucharist, the bread and wine become the Eucharist, is when the priest takes the bread. This is called the consecration. The consecration. And actually in the, in the Roman Missal, everything else is in normal words and that's bolded. And it says in clear words to pronounce this. And it instructs the priest to bow slightly. Not completely, but slightly. Some people think that that's so that the priest would bow, right? That uh, even though that I stand in the person of Christ, I don't stand in the pride of Jesus Christ, right? I'm still bowing. I'm still this instrument that's used by Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Holy Spirit to bring about the sacrament of the Eucharist, and that the priest actually breath, the breath of God hovers over the waters, right? There's, there's, Jesus breathes on people at different times and sends forth the Holy Spirit. And that one cool way that I kind of it, um, take every single time is that, that the breath, that as I bow, that I'm breathing, breathing, the Holy Spirit, the power, uh, and also speaking the words of consecration. This, and interestingly enough, I don't say this is the body of Jesus. The priest actually stands in persona Christi, in the person of Jesus Christ in this instance, and actually speaks the words of Jesus. This is my body. And not because I say it, not because Samuel Schneider from Rhinelander, Wisconsin says it, but because of an ordained priest says it with the intention of the church that the Holy Spirit who's been called down previously through the power of Jesus Christ that the bread becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And then the Missal instructs us to show the people Sometimes that can be a little bit hidden. And then show the people the body of Christ. Then again with the chalice. Taking it again. This is my blood. And show the people. That's the consecration. And, And we hear at different times that the bells will ring during that time. Kind of wake you up a little bit kind of wake you up, but also give you kind of these different, you know, to, the liturgy is meant to, uh, meant to ignite kind of all these different senses. We have incense for the smell. We have beautiful things for the eyes. We, we have the hearing, right? This is my body. This is my blood. We also have the bells, right? So the bells are supposed to not just wake you up like expecting you to be asleep, but just supposed to add a greater significance to the moment, because that moment is different than all other parts of the Mass. And one of the ways, you know, kind of, um, I think is beautiful is to use, you know, the words of Scripture, my Lord and my God. You know, the doubting Thomas, who doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ until he could put his finger in the, in the hands and put his hand into his side. And then when Jesus appears to him, my Lord and my God, and we ourselves at times doubt, right? Well, I haven't seen Jesus. Well, then when we see Jesus, right, in the faith of the Eucharist, we can say, my Lord and my God. Then the Eucharistic prayer continues. There's some other prayers. And you'll notice at this time that if you listen to the prayers, I'm not talking to all of you, okay? When I'm doing the Eucharistic prayer, it's not a prayer or a dialogue engaged of like this, where it's supposed to be somewhat of a conversation where I'm actually talking to you. The Eucharistic prayer isn't, sorry, it's, it's not about you. It's about me standing in the person of Jesus Christ, once again in that sacrifice that Jesus offered, and a prayer of offering Jesus's, laying down his life, and offering it to the Father. 
And so you'll notice, interestingly, none of the prayers are directed towards the Holy Spirit or to Jesus. We're not talking to the Holy Spirit. We're not talking to Jesus. We're using the Holy Spirit, and we're standing in the person of Jesus Christ, and we're offering it all to the Father. Interesting enough in that. Try to pay attention to the Eucharistic prayer, or even the opening prayer is always directed to the Father. Because that's, we're participating in Jesus' prayer to the Father. And then finally, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer is the great doxology, which the great doxology is just this great word. You think of a doxology, another doxology is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Well, this doxology is a culmination of the whole Eucharistic prayer. In Him, through Him, and with Him. We are, and the priest raises up the Eucharistic sacrifice and offers that culmination of the sacrifice and the whole Eucharistic prayer to the Father in that moment. And that we ourselves also offer that up to the Father. And then culminate the whole Eucharistic prayer with that doxology and an amen. And so as we go through the Eucharistic prayer to notice those three different parts. The epiclesis, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit. The consecration, where the body, where the, where the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And the culmination of that all in the doxology. I'll be talking about different parts as we continue to go, but specifically for the Eucharistic prayer, to see those parts and those aspects in it. The altar is set. And there's also a collection that's normally taken. We're not going to take one today. But normally there's a collection taken, which we kind of think is, is just an aspect of uh, maintaining the building that we're in and everything else. But it's also to signify in some way your participation in the sacrifice, that you offer up something. Money is, you know, is so-so, right? We, we bring the money as a significance for something more. Hopefully we don't just offer money, but we also offer our entire selves to Jesus in with that gift. Um, so normally they would, I was going to have them bring it forward and kind of as the aspect of the bread and wine being brought forward, that that's an aspect or an opportunity for you to be able to bring your prayers and sacrifices to the altar as well with that. Thinking about how the bread and wine are transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And that we, our sacrifices are also transformed through God's grace. Um, and so we bring those simple things to him so that he might make something beautiful and so much more out of that. For the opening of the Eucharistic prayer, there's a prayer that says, um, I can't think of the name right now, but it's, it was inserted in the liturgy from Vatican II, and it's taken from the uh, Jewish rite on Friday evening, the start of the Sabbath. They always offer up bread and wine, and so these prayers are specifically Jewish. Um, and they can be done silently or out loud. So sometimes you'll notice on Sunday where I'll do the prayers silently while music is still going on, and sometimes it'll be out loud. We'll do these out loud today. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you. Fruit of the earth and work of human hands will become for us the bread of life. Blessed be God And then an old tradition of adding water to wine is added. And this is, has different traditions. Some of the traditions say that, well, in the Roman time and in Jewish, Jewish time, that was just normal. You always added water to wine, and so we just continued to do that. Another uh, way of thinking about it is as well as that Peter, Paul speaks about at the Eucharistic uh, at the different gatherings of Christians, they would drink freely of wine. And he says, don't become drunk at, at Mass. And so one of the other thoughts about it is that water was added to the wine to cut it so that it wasn't as strong or as potent in that. But the tradition was always continued to add water to wine. And with it, 
added a greater significance in prayer that is said. And so now the priest says quietly, but I'll say it out loud today, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And it's a beautiful prayer, thinking about the way that our humanity, in some ways, entering to Jesus Christ. Our humanity is like the water, right? Not very exciting, pretty plain. Jesus is the wine. Uh, so much more of a flavor. And so when the water is added, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, right? That wine of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And the way that the water and the wine are mixed and mingled, is there's no way to separate after. And then the Jewish rite continues. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it will become our spiritual drink. Blessed be God forever. And then a prayer is said by the priest and bows, and this is a, a beautiful prayer. With humble spirit and contrite heart, May we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice in your sight this day be pleasing to you, Lord God. It's a beautiful prayer that I love uh, praying because of the humility um, and just asking that our sacrifice in your sight might be pleasing to you, right? Never taking it for granted, never uh, just assuming it, but always in humility presenting it and praying with a humble and contrite heart. The Psalms speak about that, right? Jesus, God does not desire Holocaust offerings. He desires a humble and contrite heart. And we bring that before him in a Holocaust offering, a great sacrifice in Jesus Christ who also offers a humble and contrite heart. And so it's not as if it's magic and it just happens without our doing, but that we bring also our humble and contrite hearts which are necessary for this to be a pleasing sacrifice to God the Father. And then, also realizing that a priest, right, we're about to, I'm about to stand in the person of Christ, I'd stand in the person of Christ in different parts, but especially in the Eucharistic, the Eucharist here. And so in realizing that priests are not perfect, right, we, we know that, priests aren't perfect. Uh, we hope that, you know, they, they get the opportunity to pray a little bit more and know maybe more theology but also realize that priests are human and need forgiveness, need to go to confession just like everyone else. And that also before this Eucharistic sacrifice that we wash. And so um, I say, as water is poured over my hands, wash me, O Lord, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And this is not so that I might have clean hands so that when I distribute communion later, you know, I'll be, have clean hands. This is a spiritual significance. So even if I get a drop of water or anything else, it's just fine because I should have washed my hands even before Mass. So this uh, is that spiritual significance of, again, asking the Lord's mercy upon the priest. This next line um, is, is a beautiful line as well. I, uh, the whole Eucharistic prayer, right? All these different lines that we just kind of hear so often that we never even think about. And so uh, you don't need to stand up, but I'll just say it and then we'll, we'll, I'll explain and then we'll repeat it again. It says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Now again, the priest just prayed this, right? With humble spirit and contrite heart, may we be accepted by you, Lord, right? And then I'm saying this out loud to all of you. Now, my sacrifice and yours might kind of seem like it's two separate sacrifices. But a different translation could be, in fact, my, mine and your sacrifice. Kind of a, a unified. The priest stands in the person of Christ and offers the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the priest unites his sacrifice to that as priest and victim. But we also offer our sacrifice not in kind of separation, but we bring our sacrifice that we brought before the altar to be united with the sacrifice of Jesus's here on the altar. And so when we talk about that, we should be calling to mind our sacrifice and not just make it something separate from the cross of Christ, but in fact bring it and unite it to the cross of Christ and the sacrifice here. And so pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. 
May the Lord accept sacrifice at your hand for the praise and glory of his name, for our good of all his holy church. And so again, you're, you're praying that same exact prayer that the priest just prayed. May the Lord accept the sacrifice that... So you're, you're praying for me. You're praying that the Lord may accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his church. Then we move into the prayer over the offerings. And this prayer over the offerings is kind of like the colic at the beginning and the prayer after the offerings. Every single day it's different. So every single... All those other prayers are very similar, right? They're all the same. This one is different, a special prayer. And today, specifically, it comes from the Common of Martyrs for St. Agatha. We pray. May the offerings we bring in celebration of Blessed Agatha win your gracious acceptance, O Lord, we pray, just as the struggle of her suffering and passion was pleasing to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And then we move into the preface. It also looks like preface, as pronounced preface. This preface always has the beginning dialogue. The Lord be with you, and with your spirit. And then also, and then has a reminder of kind of this thanksgiving. The final line in the preface of the call and response is, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And so every single time that we start this preface, we're reminded of what we're doing here, right? That we're giving thanks to the Lord our God. Why? Because he needs it? No, he doesn't need it. But we need it. We need it, and it is right and just that we offer it to him. And then the preface always ends with the holy, 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 which reminds us, actually, this weekend is, the first reading is going to be from Isaiah, which has the angels singing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. And so we remember especially that holiness, that this is the start of heaven and earth coming together, that that eternal banquet and wedding feast in heaven comes to earth and that the angels surround this altar and that we join the altars, altar in, or the angels in praising God for all eternity. And so, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, for the blood of your blessed martyr, martyr Agatha poured out like Christ to glorify your name, shows forth your marvelous works by which our weakness you perfect your power, and on the feeble bestow strength to bear you witness through Christ our Lord. And so with the powers of heaven, we worship you constantly on earth and before your majesty without end, we acclaim. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. To you, therefore, most merciful Father, we make humble prayer and petition through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, that you accept and bless these gifts these offerings, these holy and unblemished sacrifices, which we offer you firstly for your holy Catholic Church, be pleased to grant her peace to guard, unite, and govern her throughout the whole world, together with your servant Francis, our Pope, and James, our Bishop, and all those who, holding to the truth, hand on the Catholic and apostolic faith. Remember, Lord, your servants. and all gathered here whose faith and devotion are known to you. For them we offer you this sacrifice of praise, or they offer for themselves and all who are dear to them, for the redemption of their souls and hope of health and well-being, and paying their homage to you, the eternal God, living and true. In communion with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed Joseph, her spouse, your blessed apostles and martyrs, Peter and Paul, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Jude, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Chrysogonus, John, and Paul, Cosmas, and Damian, and all your saints. We ask that through their merits and prayers and all things we may be defended by your protecting help. 
Therefore, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation of our service, that of your whole family. Order our days in your peace and command that we be delivered from eternal damnation and counted among the flock of those you have chosen. Be pleased, O God, we pray, to bless, acknowledge, and approve this offering in every respect. Make it spiritual and acceptable so that it may become for us the body and blood of your most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. On the day before he was to suffer, he took bread in his holy and venerable hands and with eyes raised to heaven. To you, O God, as Almighty Father, giving you thanks, he said the blessing, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it. For this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, took this precious chalice in his holy and venerable hands, and once more giving you thanks, he said the blessing and gave the chalice to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. For this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith. We proclaim your death, O Lord and profess your resurrection until you come again. Therefore, Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the blessed passion, the resurrection from the dead, and the glorious ascension into heaven of Christ, your Son, our Lord, we, your servants and your holy people, offer to your glorious majesty from the gifts that you have given us, this pure victim, this holy victim, this spotless victim, the holy bread of eternal life and the chalice of everlasting salvation. Be pleased to look upon these offerings with a serene and kindly countenance and to accept them as once you were pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel the just, the sacrifice of Abraham our father in faith, and the offering of your high priest Melchizedek, a holy sacrifice, a spotless victim. In humble prayer we ask you, Almighty God, command that these gifts be borne by the hands of your holy angel to your altar on high in the sight of your divine majesty, so that all of us who through this participation at the altar receive the most holy body and blood of your Son, may be filled with every grace and heavenly blessing. Remember also, Lord, your servants who have gone before us with a sign of faith and rest in the sleep of peace. Grant them, O Lord, we pray, and all who sleep in Christ, a place of refreshment, light, and peace. To us also, your servants, through those sinners, Hope in your abundant mercies. Graciously grant some share in fellowship with your holy apostles and martyrs, with John the Baptist, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, Ignatius, Alexander, Marcellinus, Peter, Felicity, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia, and all your saints. Admit us, we beseech you, into their company, not weighing our merits, but granting us your pardon, through Christ our Lord, through whom you continue to make all these good things, O Lord. You sanctify them, fill them with life, bless them, and bestow them upon us. Through him and with him and in him, O God Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. And now the Eucharistic liturgy completes. Well, it doesn't complete. We still have right. We, we still have more of the Eucharistic liturgy, but that's kind of the main. Now it starts the communion rite, the rite of communion. Now one of the things that happened is now we have Jesus 
present with us. And we talk about the Eucharist as also communion. And when we think about communion, we think about being in communion with somebody, we think about being in union with, right? And so when we think about communion, we, when we receive communion, we talk about being in communion with the Pope, with the bishops, uh, with one another. And this communion rite is meant to signify that. Not completely. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But we especially are in communion with Jesus at this point. Interesting enough, we wait for the Our Father to pray the Our Father, the words that Jesus himself taught us of how to pray to his Father. And we wait until Jesus is present with us to do so. And call also the Father with Jesus Christ with us as well. I love the opening words, which I've, I've mentioned at different times, um, at different homilies, at the Savior's command. So at Jesus' command, so this is an instruction for all of you, and formed by divine teaching. That's beautiful. Formed, that we're actually formed, we're changed by divine teaching, by the things that Jesus teaches us, by what we're, we learn from God, that we're actually formed and changed. And most especially, we're formed and changed in our baptism that we're able to dare to say. I love that. We dare to say. It's not even that we, we dare to pray. We, we don't even, like, just the fact that we dare to even say the words of the Our Father because we have confidence in Jesus Christ and the love of the Father. And so, at the Savior's command and formed by divine teaching, we dare to say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress. Now, interesting enough, I just love that prayer, this prayer after the Our Father. Deliver us from all evil. What especially, right? That we may always be free from sin and safe from all distress. What kind of distress, right? Not just physical, but spiritual, emotional, physical. And as we await the blessed coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. And this next prayer has got to be one of my favorites, right? We pray, um, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church. We realize that at times, us as members fail in our sins, right? But we ask that God the Father to most especially look on the faith of your church, which is the bride of Christ, which is guided by the Holy Spirit at all times, which we understand is something more than just the members that make it up. That the church is not reducible to its human members but it has Jesus Christ as the head and the, and the animation of the Holy Spirit always. And so the sins of the people are not what form it, as we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace, I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Now, very important, this next, next part is, is this peace which I offer. And then this is, so that's kind of the end of the first part of the communion, right? And then the second part, I, I pray that peace be with you, and then you offer peace to each other. In different rites of the Catholic Church, well, uh, Indian, in Indian rite, the priest actually receives the priest from the Eucharist and then shares it with the servers who then share it with everyone else. And there's actually a physical contact that takes place from the Eucharist out to all the people. In our right, that's not as significant there. But that the peace of the Lord, right? Not just, not just a nice saying of like, oh, have a good day. This is the peace of the Lord, the peace of Christ. 
Now, interestingly enough, it's also not a time where sometimes I know when I came to Mass and I was having a fight with my brothers or sisters or different things, it was kind of like that time of like, well, you've got to reconcile with the people around you in order to uh, you know, receive communion. It, uh, Jesus talks about that. Leave the gifts at the altar and go and reconcile with your brother now. The church has kind of defined that this, that the exchange of peace is not ordered towards reconciliation. You should have already done that before you came to Mass. This is more a significance of being in communion with one another. That we realize that we are the body of Christ. That the body of Christ is here and also out with the people. That we are about to receive communion with Jesus Christ and with one another. And that significance of exchanging peace is supposed to signify the communion in the body of Christ and the communion of one another that is already present here. However, I would say that it shouldn't distract us from what's present here in, on the altar. That we shouldn't, the church is instructed that we don't run around and say peace to every single person. Right? It's a symbolic communion. And so those around you say peace too, but you don't need to run uh, to the other end of the church to say peace to the different people, right? That we don't want to take too much to do that. And so, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Let us offer each other the sign of peace. Next, the priests, you often don't notice this, perhaps because you're exchanging peace and then they jump right in the Lamb of God. But the priest sometimes takes a small host, sometimes a larger host, and there's always a breaking of the bread, signifying that kind of, uh, the breaking of the bread is so incredibly important of like sharing, of communion, that we break the bread and that at the feeding of the 5,000, that they broke bread and fed 5,000 people even with only five loaves but also that Christ's body is broken, that we ourselves sometimes experience brokenness, but it's in that that we share with one another. But there's also a significance that as the priest breaks this, that he takes a little piece of the host, breaks off a little piece, and puts it in the chalice and says, May this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who receive it. I always think very significant at this point as well is the combining of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. What does that signify? Again, we talked about that a little bit earlier. When bread and wine, or when the, body, when the blood is separated from the body, there's death. But when there's blood that's flowing through the body, there's life. And so that little piece of the Eucharist that combines the body and blood is kind of once again to have that the presence of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of his death is here, but that we receive Jesus Christ resurrected. That he sits at the right hand of the Father and that the Eucharist that we receive, the Jesus that we receive, is not a dead Jesus, but is one who is living. And of course, always focusing on the mercy of God, we say the Lamb of God. And so we pray, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, grant us peace. And then the priest, during that time, also has another prayer that he says quietly that I'll pray out loud with you today. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who by the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, through your death gave life to the world, free me by this, your most holy body and blood, from all my sins and from every evil. Keep me always faithful to your commandments and never let me be parted from you. This is um, another time where the priest specifically offers for the people to see. There's a beautiful line, Behold the Lamb of God. This reminds us of John the Baptist who pointed out Jesus Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God. We realize that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is here, who takes away the sins of the world. And blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. We realize that not all are called but not all respond. And so blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb, those who respond, 
And then we respond not in haughtiness, not in pride, but of course, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter into my roof. Now realizing, again, these are the words of the centurion who said that, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. Or in this case, my soul shall be healed. Realizing that in order to receive this great gift of Jesus Christ, we ourselves need to heal our soul. We've done that so much, right? We've asked for mercy at the beginning. We ask for mercy again right there. And once again, we ask for his mercy that our sins might not be remembered, but that Jesus and his word, that only at the word, my soul shall be healed. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Another instruction that said it, is said quietly, which I just prayed, is as a priest receives the body of Christ, he receives, says, may the body of Christ keep me safe for eternal life. And then as he receives the blood... May the blood of Christ keep me safe for eternal life. There are also, also at this time uh, sometimes a communion antiphon that said that is kind of linked with the saint, and so I'd like to say that today. Communion antiphon. The Lamb who is at the center of the throne will lead them to the springs of the waters of life. As the priest purifies, he purifies not because he's doing the dishes, um, purifying to make sure that none of the Eucharistic species is left, that no crumb, that even a crumb of the Eucharist uh, resides the full body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And the church, uh, for the prayer that the priest or anyone who's purifying says, um, which I say all the time, but of course never say out loud, I say underneath my breath, is, um, oh man, now I'm forgetting right now. And of course, only say it um, in my normal situations, which so what is past our lips as food, O Lord, may we possess in purity of heart, that what has been given to us in time may be our healing for eternity. If there would ever be a case where you drop a host or um, if for some reason a chalice or some of the precious blood uh, dripped, what you want to do is, is to either consume what you can and also to the Eucharist persists as long as the accidents persist. So actually you can, you can be seated as I'm speaking about these things. Um, as long as the species exists. So one of the things that you do as long as the species exists. So if you have uh, a host or something, they'll, they'll put it in water until it dissolves. Well, once it's dissolved and no longer has the accidents of bread, then it ceases to be the Eucharist, okay? So it's kind of an interesting way. Same way if, if we'd spill some precious blood, what we do is we pour water over the area so that it would be mingled to such a degree that the water, it would no longer, it would cease to be, uh, have the accidents of wine, but would become water. And thus, the Eucharistic species would cease to exist. And so that's one thing that we would do. Another word of note, kind of in the midst of this all, is that we have two different species. We talk about it as species. I could talk for hours about the Eucharist because I took hours of classes on the Eucharist. But what's most important for you, I think, in, in this kind of aspect that I think is important for us to realize is that we have two species of the Eucharist. Interesting that we use this word species. But it's kind of like um, they're both, they're, they're different elements of different living. So we have the species of bread and the species of wine. Both are fully the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So it's not as if you receive the species of bread that you only receive the body of Christ. And that if you only receive the species of wine, that you receive just the blood of Christ. When you receive both, you receive a fuller sign of the body and blood. But let's say someone is gluten intolerant, they could receive just from the chalice and they would receive the full Eucharist. 
the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Or if you just receive the host, that's just fine as well. You don't need to receive from the chalice because by receiving from the species of bread, you receive the full body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, even if you just consume a crumb. And so we want to just make sure that we understand that so that we don't sometimes get confused in that. Oh, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. Well, yes, significantly, we can also speak about it as the species of bread. So when we call it the bread, you know, that uh, the memorial acclamation says, um, let me just pull out that memorial acclamation, because I can't remember anything unless it's actually written in front of me, uh, that we eat this bread and drink this cup. When we talk about this bread, we're talking about, or we sometimes call it, talk about, you know, you distributing the bread and I'll distribute the wine or the cup. What we're talking about is the species of bread, the species of wine or the cup. Uh, we can speak about it in that way, even though that it is the body, blood, soul, and body of Jesus Christ. That's just one way to distinguish them. Then this moment that we take after the Eucharist is a, is a very blessed time because we just received Jesus Christ, and so he is intimately with us. This should be the time when we, um, maybe we feel the closeness of Christ, maybe we don't, but we, but we have that realization of the presence that we are what we eat and that we've just received and eaten Jesus Christ and that we pray that we have a humble and contrite heart to allow the grace of God to, to endure and persevere in ourselves as much as possible. Um, this is the moment of Jesus Christ in our life. Interestingly enough, in all the other sacraments, we receive the power of Christ. In baptism, we receive the power of Christ. In confirmation, we receive the power of, of the Holy Spirit um, through Jesus Christ, in a way. But in the Eucharist, we receive not the power of Jesus, but we receive Jesus himself. And thus, that's why the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, because the source and summit of our faith is Jesus Christ. Let us pray. This closing prayer often references the Eucharist that we just received through the sacrament. So if you try to listen closely, again, this one is different every single day of the year. And so if you listen closely, this one specifically is for virgin martyrs. And so we'll hear about that, but we'll also hear about the sacrament that we received. O oh God, who bestowed on blessed Agatha a crown among the saints for her twofold triumph of virginity and martyrdom, grant we pray through the power of this sacrament that bravely overcoming every evil, we may attain to the glory of heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And now that kind of is the last main prayer. And then, of course, the setting forth where I'll offer a blessing. Now, of course, we've already been blessed by Jesus Christ in the reception of the Holy Eucharist. But there's also a tradition of a blessing from most especially bishops, from holy people, from priests as well. And so that blessing, and then I send you forth. One of my favorite ones that I use all the time is, you know, there's a few different ones that we can, we can say, but I always say, you know, Go forth, the Mass is ended, uh, is one of them, which I, uh, yeah, of course I can't remember the actual lines unless it's actually happening. Uh, but, but basically the sending forth is finally the sending forth where we go out. It's very interesting that we have a huge buildup to receiving the Eucharist, but then as soon as we receive the Eucharist, it's like the next thing we do, we're walking out the door. Well, that's because the sacrament and Jesus that we receive and the grace that we receive here are not meant to reside here. They're meant to go forth. Doesn't mean that we don't ever come here, right? Well, if we're meant to go forth, then let's just stay forth. Well, no, no, we've got to come to receive and then go forth. And so there's always that sending forth that we go. And so I encourage you to think about that next time, just about how fast that turnaround is. We receive the Eucharist and then we're sent forth. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. One of the other uh, ways to end is uh, go forth, the Mass is ended. And I always find that one hilarious 
because it's like, go forth, the Mass is ended, and you're like, thanks be to God, thanks be to God. But maybe that one's appropriate today. You know, like, thanks be to God, Mass is finally over, right? Some kids certainly, you know, think that, and I certainly thought that many, many times. But we thank God as we go forth. I'd like to close uh, at the other one. We open with a Thanksgiving before Mass, and I'd like to close with a Thanksgiving after Mass from St. Thomas Aquinas, which you can find on the back uh, cover of the... Um, so on the inside of your cover, there's a Thanksgiving before Mass and a Thanksgiving after Mass. And so we'll actually, can I share this with you? Yeah. And we'll, uh, we can pray that Thanksgiving after Mass together. If you all find it. I give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, who have been pleased to nourish me, a sinner and your unworthy servant, with the precious body and blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, this through no merits of mine, but due solely to the graciousness of your mercy. And I pray that this Holy Communion may not be for me an offense or be punished, but a saving plea for forgiveness. May it be for me the armor of faith and the shield of goodwill. May it cancel my faults, destroy concupiscence and carnal passions, Increase charity and patience, humility and obedience, and all the virtues. May it be a firm defense against the snares of all my enemies, both visible and invisible. The complete calming of all impulses, both of the flesh and of the spirit. A firm adherence to you, the one true God, and joyful completion of my life's course. And I beseech you to lead me, a sinner, to the banquet where beyond all telling, where with your Son and the Holy Spirit, you are the true light of your saints, fullness of satisfied desire, eternal gladness, consummate delight, and perfect happiness, through Christ our Lord. Amen.